Welcome to the Giant Step Podcast with your host, Maurice Bernstein, as we take you on a journey into music and culture from the world of Giant Step. Hello and welcome to the Giant Step Podcast, where we take you on a journey into music and culture. I'm your host, Morris Bernstein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Giant Step. And this week's guest is Pablo Henderson. Pablo is the Vice President of Marketing at Equinox Hotels. And we talk about his unique uh, upbringing in London, uh, coming to the United States We talk about where hospitality is going to sit in a post-COVID world and how he sees wellness playing into hospitality now as well. Um, This podcast was originally recorded as an Instagram Live on December the 16th, 2020. So please excuse any technical or sound issues you, you hear. The content is well worth listening to. And as always, if you want to find out more about Giant Step, visit us at our website at giantstep.net. So please now enjoy my conversation with Pablo Henderson. There we go. So first of all, Pablo, um, were you happy with the results you just had? So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I spent um, every last minute trying to watch the, the, the last few minutes and then I got logged on to this. So I missed the final, final score. Um, we're at 1-1 when I dropped off. Yeah, you lost. Oh my God! Pablo, Pablo's a Liverpool fan. No, actually, you you won the game. Your um, Bobby Firmino scored a header in the last minute, so oh, you won the game. Congratulations! Oh, that, so you say I missed that for you. That's how much I love you. <laughs> wow! I, I've even I was watching it. So, uh, <laughs> well, I know well, why you were watching it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hoping that you would lose. Um, so uh, Pablo is a Liverpool supporter. Uh, I'm obviously not a Liverpool supporter. Uh, his team just won. Uh, but that, we're not here to talk football because um, I think we would, uh, some people would enjoy it, but I think some <laughs> people would be quite bored by it. Um, but I'm really happy to have Pablo here. Pablo, uh, his current role is he's the uh, vice president of marketing at Equinox Hotels. But we worked together at, um, at W uh, when he was the uh, global brand director. Um, and we'll, we'll get into sort of like some of the stuff that we, we worked on together at, at W. But also, um, I, I want to, you know, really talk about sort of the other things that he's done, um, uh, you know, the importance of wellness in his life and also his interesting story. Because part of what I want to do with this IG Live series is also have people who have what I feel are interesting and inspiring stories but can also be thought leaders, also are thought leaders in the industry and also help us navigate this crazy world. So you have a really inspiring story, Pablo. Um, so I kind of want to start at the beginning, because as I always say, our early years shape who we are and who we become. Um, so, um, you know, I'm going to let you do most of the talking about because it, it is your early years. But, you know, you you were brought up in West London. Um, and, and I think it's hard for Americans really to understand the story, um, 
of what it was like growing up in England, especially West London back then. And your story is, is also extremely interesting. So why don't you tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about sort of your background and then I'll sort of continue asking some questions about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think that we, we have a tendency of looking at our childhood in very unique ways, um, particularly because we kind of either romanticize our childhood we edit, we self-edit, you know, we take out some of the really yucky parts if we feel like we need to to protect ourselves. And I've, I've honestly struggled with looking back at the, the years that I grew up in London because some of it was really not that great. <laughs> um, and some of it I long for with great nostalgia. I grew up in what is now a very trendy part of London, very afford I couldn't have even afford to live uh, right yeah yeah when I when I actually grew up there my parents who my father's black my mother's white father was a jazz musician my mother was um, an intellectual for lack of a better term you know basically uh, somebody who um, was not very entrepreneurial but very sophisticated she's French she moved to London and they were in this relationship which was really not cool back then. You know, a mixed race relationship in the 60s and by the time I was born in the 70s was still not cool. Um, in fact, I was talking to my mom recently and, she, and we were talking about um, Labrick Grove in those days. She reminded me of a, a white man that came and spat on her for carrying a black baby. So I think a lot of people don't they have this this notion of Notting Hill as this Hugh Grant story right right I was like a rom-com yeah yeah <laughs> it was Polish immigrants it was Irish people who you know were viewed very low down on the spectrum it was West Indians and some African immigrants and um rude boys on the corner uh, everyone going to comprehensive schools. Um, comprehensive schools, so everyone knows, they're the, they're the state schools. They're like the, the local schools, whereas um, if you uh, were being given a better chance with education, you were going to either a state grammar school or you were at a private school. So the comprehensives, you know, in not in every area, but in, in the in the cities, they were the harder schools um, as far as to get, you know, ahead from. Right. Yeah. yeah. And harder in that, you know, you had to be pretty hard <laughs> to survive. Right. So my parents really felt that my brother and I should have the best possible opportunity. And they they sent me to this private school on the other side of town. In, well, not the other side, but in South Kensington, very posh neighborhood and a very um, um, elite school. And um, I'm very, very blessed to have had that opportunity. But what it meant is that I lived these two lives that were very much in conflict. This fancy elite, you know, uh, at the time it was ranked as the best school in London and um, the wealthiest people went there. Um, and, and I was living in a very poor neighborhood with really rough kids. My, my mom would always threaten, you know, my, my parents made my brother walk with books on his head um, because 
my parents didn't want us to walk like the like the West Indian kids walked, which was like you had to have a walk to show that you were hard, otherwise right. you get your ass kicked. Yeah. In that small axe show, I don't know if anyone's watching it, but they talk about how your walk could give yeah. you away. Yeah. Like if you didn't have a walk like a strut, you know, you were a victim. Yeah, in the most in the most recent one, the, the the kid who was from Surrey, who ends up in jail, he he had to totally change his persona when he was on the streets of Ladbroke Grove, or else he was going to get his ass kicked. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, he's in Brixton. Yeah, yeah. Actually, no, he does. He goes to Dub Vendor. And, uh, yeah. So, so you know, there were little nuances like that that you had to get hip to really quick. And um, uh, but my parents just kept on insisting like that we use um a certain level of grammar and that you know we not dress a certain way and whatnot and that was easily done in one context but it meant living a dual life i would literally sometimes take the clothes off that i wore leaving the house because the problem was that i was perpetually branded by the mere fact that I wasn't wearing a uniform. So the uniforms that you wear have a badge on them and people know where you're from and what you're about. Right. Just by that uniform, because they're mandatory in, in England. And I went to uh, an international school where um, you weren't allowed to do uniforms. So uh, everyone wore their, their very French bourgeois, you know, little style. Which was an extra invitation for an artist getting beaten up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when I had to walk through from from uh, South Kensington up to Labrook Grove to Kensal Rise, it was like the gauntlet. Yeah. Um. You you didn't know whether you were going to make it or not. I'm not exaggerating. Not that yeah. you were going to get shot because that's a very American thing. Yeah. But to get wet up, you know, yeah. you could get stabbed in a second. Yeah. And, um. And so that gave me like that gave me a certain streetwiseness early on and it allowed me to learn to blag and talk my way out of situations and uh, know how to dance between cultures in a way that later on, I think in life would prove to be useful. But it also exposed me to things that uh, the kids in South Kensington were not getting exposure to like, like reggae music, you know, and, and the steel pan and, you know, I, I think, you know, my dad was a pioneer. He was a, a, a jazz musician and, and, and known and celebrated for his, his contributions to jazz music. But he's also known as the person that started the Notting Hill Carnival. Which is, which is amazing. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, for those, for those that don't know, the Notting Hill Carnival that happens on um, bank holiday weekend at the end of the summer, which is the Labor Day of in England, and it's the week before we have Labor Day here. It is probably one of, I think, the biggest street fair in the world. I would say it's the right? largest street festival in Europe. Right, and it is just it it, it is the opportunity. It was the opportunity for the West Indian community to really celebrate who who they are. I mean it. You know, we have here the East, the West Indian Parade on Eastern Parkway. West Indian Parade is nothing compared to the Notting Hill Carnival. It really doesn't even come close. Um, We're talking millions yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and twenty two, twenty eight thousand um, police uh, metropolitan police yeah. officers <laughs> to hold it down too. And you know, and that's why this this past summer with the you know I really struggled this past summer 
looking back at these riots and Black Lives Matter and whatnot, because it brought me back to a place where I remember growing up around all of that. You know, the riots in England made this past summer look like a joke, <laughs> you right. know, were, they were full on. Um, and, and so I guess I look back at some of that. And I'm like, well, here I am. And that was what thirty five years ago, and nothing has changed <laughs> really right um, yeah. those riots you thought were the riots that ended all you know um never see riots like that again um and here we are yeah so i mean we 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 touched very briefly on the t v show small acts uh um and I just want to talk a little because there's a lot of parallels to your growing up that are in that that show if people haven't seen it it's the steve mcqueen um uh series it's five films um it's on amazon uh prime it is absolutely incredible and for me i didn't grow up in west london i grew up in manchester but the the attention to detail as a timepiece is second to none but but you actually lived through i mean that's kind of like so my older brother lived through the, the main era. I grew up in the 70s into the early 80s, and that's what they touch on. Yes, there are, there are certain people that are highlighted from, you know, what was the British Black Panthers at the time, who were, you know, friends of our family and whatnot. Um, but uh, I was still relatively young um, coming through, like, the main period. And now, now that they're getting into the 80s, that's kind of like my, my period of time. Um, and I struggled with it all, really, because, you know, I talked about how you look back at your childhood and you look back at your past with this different lens. There was a word that I heard in one of the episodes, maybe the second or third episode, and it hit me like, like, like I could have used the word, you know, like kite or something, you know, right, that you'd, right. you'd be like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the word half cast. Yeah. It used to call me half caste all the time. And it's not a it's not in a flattering way. <laughs> um and and it's to describe someone who's, you know, neither black nor white. And I heard that word in the show and I was just like, What? <laughs> I haven't heard that. No one's called me that in a long time, you know? And so it's touched on many nerves. Um at first I was very skeptical. But I've been really impressed with the the subtle nuance of and uh, the, the way he's taken certain things and and I realized that for so many years as a consumer of content, um, I have been underserved. Um, that there's never really been shows that reflected my world in any way, where people of West West Indian immigrants were the protagonists and not. Right purely in a humorous way yeah. or as the butt of the joke and that were not ancillary to a white protagonist that was really the key person whose narrative was being furthered along the way. And so I've watched several of these for the last, they come out on Fridays, and I've watched them not only with my own um, nostalgia of wanting to kind of, and the music is absolutely incredible. Oh, incredible. incredible. In um, fact, Car Carmen who's on here, uh, she said she made a comment about how brilliant the music is as well. Hi, yeah. Carmen. 
but it also it looks at dialect and it looks at the influence of how some of these things have then had ripple effects and so i think if you're into culture anthropology um uh if you're into looking at how we get to where we are today and understanding some of it it's a good exercise in education is every single one of them going to be something that you 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 think is amazing or that you relate to probably not you may even struggle with some of the the language and the and the, the back and forth um but it's worth tuning into and it's also worth people putting their money where their mouth is because uh over this past summer i heard everyone talking about yeah 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 i'm going to do all this i'm going to support black lives here and that yeah, yeah. what's the fucking show you know <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Just, and, and also, I think it, it, it gives um, Americans a perspective of what it was like uh, people of color growing up in the United Kingdom. People don't really know that story and how racist England you know, is as a, has been as a country. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit better now, but it, there's serious underlining racism. And the, you know, the, the story is very different because you know, it wasn't the slave ships that brought people over. It came; they came over, you know, for a different reason. Like so, yeah. way, you know, right? My ancestors were put on a slave ship and sent from West Africa to the Caribbean, and then my old man got back on a boat and went back to the same people that had sent him <laughs> to, to send his ancestors <laughs> to, the, to the island. And it was because after the war, there was this, and we shouldn't spend the entire, yeah, yeah. you know, talk on this, but there was this deficit of labor because of the First and Second World War. And yeah. they needed these people to rebuild England. So they were invited there. My dad used to tell me about how when he got there, obviously that no one would rent an apartment to these people. No one would help them in any way. It was really, really rough. And it was bloody cold. My dad really, really suffered with the cold. Um, well, that's why we all left. So. <laughs> <laughs> the Caribbean, right? Yeah. But, but the teddy boys, people don't talk about the teddy boys. These were, the, the skinheads were actually good people. People get that confused, right? The skinheads were people who loved um, West Indian culture and got into the ska music and all that originally. Some, some of them. Some no, of them. before yeah, it became yeah, yeah, yeah. the front yeah. and all of that um but the teddy boys uh and this is in the 50s were ruthless they were they were gangs of working class white young men that went around just looking to beat up black people and my dad would be you know a jazz musician coming out of these clubs at five in the morning you know and um he said that if it wasn't for the milkman delivering milk um <laughs> And him being able to use those milk bottles to protect themselves, they'd be done for. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, because and, you couldn't carry a weapon as a black right. man, in, you know, in, in England. You, you, that was like a non-starter. Anyway, yeah. you should not use yeah. this for. Right. But, 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 but again, it's interesting and important to position stuff with understanding your background compared to if you would have grown up uh, in in Atlanta, for example, which is kind of where we're going to go now, because how did you get to the States? So I have to add one little caveat. Sure. Of all those kids in my neighborhood, I was given more privilege, more access, more education, more travel, 
more financial benefits than anyone in my neighborhood. And, and that's how I was able to get to do what I did. And so I can't tell a story about growing up in Labrook Grove and make it sound like I'm Jay-Z or someone who right. made their way out of the projects or whatnot. Yeah. That was not the case. You know, um, I, you know, a, a lot of privilege. And so just want to make that clear. But I did have a thirst for travel from a from very early age. And at the end of the day, um, I still ended up finding my way to like not do well in school and got kicked out of that private school and started traveling around. And I spent some time throwing parties and um, promoting. Um, and, and, and this is during the time of rave culture and whatnot. And I went down to the Balearic Islands and I was throwing parties down there. And it was all going nowhere. <laughs> but you were having a good time. That's the important part. <laughs> um, had no um, GRE, no SATs, no high school degree or anything. And, and then I went off to South America and I started working uh, for the Carter Center, doing volunteer work. And then Jimmy Carter. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, Carter. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. teaching French and working on elections. And, um, and then I went and lived in Africa for a year. Um, so Which part spent, of Africa were you living in? I was in Ethiopia for one year. Wow. And uh, uh, that was an incredible experience. And all of this is like through osmosis between the dub music and the calypso and the rave and the emergence of techno and house music and acid um, music. And um, then living in East Africa and East African music and living in South America and in the Amazon with Brazilian music. It's all going into this like brain in a weird way. And I'm the least musical person in the world, which was always this big like thing. It's like, how the hell are you? Are you the son of Russ Henderson? And you're not <laughs> a musical instrument. But it's coming into me in a way that I know is going to manifest in other ways. Mm -hmm. So I go to um, I go to East Africa um, and I realize that I've hit like a, a bit of a plateau. I actually become a, an assistant director at the Carter Center. Um, and it's uh, amazing work and I'm very fulfilled doing human rights work. And uh, I get an opportunity to go to Emory um, based in Atlanta uh, and I take it. And it's like, you know, I've always been a big believer that you should do as many things in life to not close doors mm -hmm. because um, eventually you run out of doors that are open. And when certain doors open, you got to go through them really quickly because they're not going to stay open forever. Correct. And when this opportunity came about, I was like, wow, I can really undo some of the screw ups from the past by going to Emory and, um, and let's see where this goes. And I've always had a passion for psychology or pop culture, whichever, <laughs> whichever you really <laughs> um, you want to call it. You know, I mean, it was just people, really. Um, and so I got a degree in psychology from, from Emory. And in my last semester one of my mates who was a, a swiss guy who um would come into a decent inheritance and was in the business school i was like well pablo what are you going to do and all of my friends had like lined up these cushy internships and jobs and oh yeah well my father you know got me a job at anderson consulting right right oh, well, my uncles you know blow and i was like Fuck, i've got no one here <laughs> And I haven't, I haven't done any of the things that I was supposed to do. I didn't go and interview for these, for these internships or whatnot. And uh, he's like, well, I'm thinking I'm going to go buy this nightclub in Buckhead and I'd love you to run it. 
Now he knew me as a party organizer right. and that I'm good with people. Right. So, um, and also with English being my first language and I, I knew how to promote, um, which, you know, you hear people talk about networking and whatnot. Learn how to promote uh, and you'll be able to solve all of those other well, things. Well, I, I always say that networking is a couple of vowels away from not working. So you're absolutely correct. You need to learn how to promote because you're actually <laughs> doing something. You know? <laughs> and so, um, so I, so we walk into this place and uh, there's this Persian guy that, that owns the, the, the club. And, um, and he says, look, I'm going to buy the club off you. And the guy says, I'm not willing to sell it all. I'll sell you 51%. Um, and we get stuck with this other guy uh, as our partner. And that's actually the best thing that ever happened because I learned, I learned from him. School of hard knocks from this guy in, in being a nightclub owner. Um, first thing he made me do, um, so I graduated on like May the 26th or something, right? Like, no, actually it wasn't before Memorial Day. It was like May the 17th, I graduated. May the 18th, I started as the general manager and minority partner of this nightclub. I walk in on my first day and the guy tells me, come here, we're going to get you sorted out takes me to the bathroom and he says, um, take that um, shot glass out of the toilet. And I, I look at him <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I have one of those um, dishwashing gloves mm -hmm. you know, that's up here. And I've got my hand in the toilet, taking this, this shot glass that's wedged down in the toilet. Someone's dropped. Mm -hmm. And he said, first of all, you never ask anyone to do something you don't want to do yourself. That's the rule number one. Great lesson. Rule number two is if people can't piss, they can't drink. <laughs> they can't drink. Can't <laughs> you don't make it any money. Yeah. Try getting a plumber at two o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And if you ever make more than $400 an hour, you shouldn't be working here. And that's right. the price of a plumber on a Saturday, right. about $385 an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really valuable lesson in kind of <laughs> setting out business priorities and how to manage other people. And I, I've taken that lesson with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, talk, talk, um, Atlanta um, musically is, is, is fascinating and has been the, the center of amazing music for so many years. Tell us a little bit about what was happening in the scene when when you were there, was that the outcast days? Was it the goodie mob days? What what was the what was the scene there? So uh, you know, it's really weird. You know, when you're a former nightclub owner, it's very easy to end up being like these like faded rock stars. Um, I hear some of them, you know, the Studio Fifty Four guys and whatnot. It's like, fuck, dude, I don't want to hear about your your stories anymore. <laughs> like, I get it. You know, we've all been around celebrities. We've all done, but that's an era that's kind of come and gone. Everyone thinks that their era was the best era ever. Um, I will tell you that Atlanta in the 90s and the early 2000s was the best era. Great music. Potentially yeah. in the world, right? Mm -hmm. It was the epicenter of, of culture. R&B, an R&B, yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, whether it was R.E.M. that was doing things in Athens or it was Big Git and the Goody Mob or it was Andre and Outkast or it was 
Chile and TLC or yep. or Shakespeare or um, I mean I could go down a list Usher. of bigger, uh, the biggest producers yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alice Austin. I could, I could go on and on. Jermaine Dupri. Yeah, LaFace. Like, on yeah. and on yeah. and on. LaFace Records. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be the idiots that fell on having the hottest nightclub in the city, you know. And um, um, and so I opened up another nightclub after the first one, and it became this wicked hot spot. And you know, the beauty of it is that it was this melting pot of the best hip hop, the best dance music, the best uh, kind of like a new wave vibe, the best gay night. Um, I, so at the end of the day, I kind of took some of what I was doing it, it, from picking off these cultures that I had been exposed to and then figuring out that they all had worth. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll never forget that time. But I'm always very cautious to be kind of braggadocious about, well, yeah, I was working with this person and that person was coming and this is right. game, you know, pretty much. If, if they were the biggest DJ from, you know, um, Funkmaster Flex to Red Alert to anyone that you can think of in, you know, DJ Trauma, uh, DJ Mars, anyone in the hip hop world had played my nightclub. And if it was electronic music, anyone in the electronic music during that phase played my nightclub. And if you were Denzel Washington or Madonna or Lenny Kravitz. That was the place to be. Came yeah. to the club, so that that was it. Atlanta had a magic that I don't know where it's gone. Um, I don't know if it's still there. I doubtful because these things don't stay stagnant. They happen during a time you seize the energy, you you take advantage, and then it goes. And that's why I'm always very reluctant to say, "Oh, you know, looking back on the good old days." Right. Because I, that's happening somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not a believer in the the back in the day conversation, but but I I think it's important for people to hear about that. And, um, you know, my experience with Atlanta started at the end of the 90s when I started going down uh, to the Yin Yang Club to see the the soul scene that was happening there, like India, Irie, Donnie, Jeeva. I mean, and I was just I was I was blown away by it. How this is incredible music. Um, I took my dad to the Yin Yang Club. My dad was 80-something, and it was about 3.30, 4 in the morning, and I was just knackered. I was like, Dad, we've got to go. He's like, you can go if you want. I'll, <laughs> I'll find my own way home. And that, you know, that's just a testament to these old jazz heads. Right. Um, on one hand, they just you're not going to go longer than these, these old jazz musicians. But on the other hand, it was a testament to the quality of the and music. And the, the energy as well. The, the, yeah. Of the Yin Yang yeah. Club. Yeah. They were doing real things. Yeah, yeah, um, amazing. The guy who was on keyboards playing live while they were freestyling hip hop to live jazz, my dad said was was on par with Oscar Peterson. You know? Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a pretty big compliment to make. That's a, that's yeah. incredible. I mean, Oscar was the greatest. Um, so um, from the nightlife business, um, you you got into um, still in hospitality, but you you moved into the hotel business. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's how we that's and that's how we met. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I've been really fortunate. It's felt like everything I touched kind of turned to gold, and I got a little bit arrogant and a little bit greedy, and um, a little felt like I was a little bulletproof, and I I, I made riskier investments. 
And then 2008, 2009 hit. The crash, yeah. I was in the worst place and heavily invested in real estate and it all fell apart. Um, the good news for me was that I had already started to diversify a little bit into this very specific solution. It's a cottage industry. Hoteliers are very good at doing hotels. Right. They're shit at running hotspots. Right. Like best restaurant, the best yep. night. Yeah. And That's why um, they have partners. <laughs> yes. I was very fortunate that um, there was a new operation coming into Atlanta, a very high profile project. And they asked me to head it up uh, from a marketing perspective. Um, and it, it opened up a lot of doors for me. And so I ended up having a slew of hospitality um, clients that I was consulting for. And aside from being a nightclub owner and bar owner and restaurant owner, I was now this hospitality consultant. And I realized that the hoteliers, it's like kind of playing Monopoly. You can have the little houses, but if you have a hotel, it's like right. another, yeah. another story. And um, uh, then I got plugged into doing W stuff. And that was like really great for me. Uh, but when the crash came, um, it all kind of fell apart and they weren't hiring consultants. The contracts dried up. Things were not looking good. And uh, I went kind of hat in hand and begged W for a job. And there were four W's in Atlanta at the time. And I got a, a, a job at the one downtown. And that quickly ended up being several promotions and whatnot. And then I got a corporate uh um, job in Stanford, Connecticut, where Starwood was headquartered. And I saw that was another door that kind of opened for me. And I was like, ah, here's the opportunity to jump through this, this door and, and start something new and kind of recoup the losses of 2008, 2009. So by this time, it was 2011. I moved my family up to um, Connecticut and uh, we started we started like a new a new life, but for me it was uh, Pablo, the ex nightclub uh, guy. I owned nightclubs for thirteen years. Um, that's in, had... in, 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 in that's uh, nightclub <laughs> years and real years. That's about a hundred years, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I spent nineteen years in Atlanta. Right. Wow. Um, so. So by the time I got to, to um, Stanford and I became a corporate guy, it was interesting because the brand that I was leading was a French heritage brand. And, um, and so here I was full cycle, uh, the guy who spoke fluent, fluent French. And now I pulled, it's, I let go of like the whole underground, you know, tap into the underworld thing. And I really like lifted up the French lycée, you know, um, uh, fancy school vibe um, and kind of started working the corporate thing. And uh, it was a real education in in how to navigate uh, bureaucracy, administration, longer timelines. And I'm an entrepreneur. And so I was very fortunate in that I could bring an entrepreneurial spirit to the corporate world yeah. and meld those two things together. Um, but I had also come from an NGO, um, non-governmental organization world, when I was working in South America and in Africa. And that had provided, I also did another stint in Africa during all of that in West Africa, in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, so I worked on an election there too. 
And so what I saw was that in the political world, you needed to finesse things and that there was a, a process for making things happen. So you can't just be the brash entrepreneur and like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like make things happen from weekend to weekend. You've got to grease the wheels. There's yeah. no faster yeah. timeline. Large corporations are very slow. Yeah. Um, and so it, it became another education in kind of how to, how to uh, work relationships to some extent, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that's that explanation is very good because, you know, I, you know, I, I work with a, with a lot of uh, corporations, uh, giant step, uh, but it's rare that I, I meet people who have that entrepreneur who are senior executives at these companies, big organizations, but they have an entrepreneurial spirit as well and um, have a, a um, you know, a, an appetite for some sort of risk. And I've always found I always found working with you that, you know, it wasn't just like just go for it. But it, you were you had the appetite to take a little bit of risk because you could see that the reward from that would be quite large. And I, I think that is a nice segue to the project we worked together on, which was Doubly Records, which I think was a very risky on your end, a very risky um, you know, project to undertake. I mean, I never thought it was a risk, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but for you to, to have that confidence in something like that, because it was something that um, the brand had never done anything like that before. So maybe, uh, you know, it'd be good to get your take on how you came to to, you know, to think yeah, about I mean, that and then then contact us. You know, W had always been um, invested in music, you know, and, and W is a brand that's been around for over 20 years. And had had really um, earned its credibility in the space, um, but times change and things evolve, and there was a, a new opportunity through some of the infrastructure that the brand had put in place to build out recording studios to take the program to the next level. Yeah. The problem was that the idea of doing a record label was so daunting. You would need the right partner, and you would need the right cheerleader for the project internally to finish so. yeah. line um, and somebody who could navigate the internal um, needs at a legal level, financial investment and understanding that the ROI around a project like that would be beyond the comprehension of a, a standard um, program. Yeah. And so... Um, we did. Uh, we launched the record label with Giant Step as our partner in our agency of record on the project. Uh, uh, why we chose Giant Step, you know, I think that uh, I'm relatively smart, but where I'm really smart is in finding people that are smarter than me, uh, and I think that that is something that you have to be really good at identifying in yourself. Like, yeah, I'm good, but am I that good? And if I'm not who is and i mean don't take this the wrong way but you're a geek you know for music you know oh, I'm a total, no 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 i'm a total geek <laughs> I, I i take that as a compliment i um, mean anyone who's listened so, to my my podcast knows that uh, <laughs> so i'm gonna find impact. someone that is so incredibly passionate about something mm -hmm. and so invested and so geeky about it that i would give them expert status um and i've always been a bit of a fraud when it comes to music in that um, I grew up in a very musical household and I was a nightclub owner, but I 
the way I was able to be so sophisticated as a nightclub owner is I surrounded myself by people that were in chat rooms, you know, and understood EDM trends before they were even happening. And they would say, Pablo, there's this fucking kid. He's 17 for Cascade. You could book him for a grand. He'll play the club. And I'm like, Cascade? Never heard of him. Yeah. I'm telling you, bring him, bring him. And so, you know, those are the types of things that if you are so arrogant to think that you know, (laughs) you miss out. But if you're willing to trust people that really, really know their stuff, then you're going to do well. And that's who Giant Step was for us. They, They had the full the full package and there was not an opportunity to make a mistake on in that on that project and so um you say risk um risk can be calculated but the more you say like steven spielberg goes to make a movie he chooses the best lighting guy Uh, yeah i mean i mean this is this is the challenge when it comes to um you know uh you know marketing from a corporate level getting involved with culture um, you know, uh, it, it is a very, it's, there's a lot of blurred lines in it. And again, you know, from my experience, I've been working with brands for 20 plus years. Um, it's sometimes rare meeting somebody like you who, who gets it, you know, um, and it, it you know, and I think that's probably why, you know, we, we had so much fun and so much success with the project. I mean, we worked with people like Amber Mark, Perfume Genius, Japanese Breakfast, uh, Roosevelt, Fifi Wrong, and we literally took it all over the world and were having the same sort of success that a regular independent record label was having, and it felt authentic. People didn't mind that W was involved, and it actually made sense that they were involved as well, which is is kind of a rare thing. The authenticity has yeah. to be the heart of everything that you do, otherwise people sniff it out. And um, uh, the partners say a lot about whether you're coming from an authentic place. Agreed. So you, you added to the credibility of the project from the get-go. Um, the fact that we were able to completely circumvent the music streaming advertising um, uh, model. Uh, <laughs> we're not saying anymore. Uh, yes, we we did a very good job with that. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the mere fact that we were able to actually be able to do something that was real, yes. but still be recognized as a, a brand yes. is 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 the reality of it, yeah, you know? Yeah. And um, uh, Red Bull, I, I have the, like, that is like, to me, the North Star of, of many, many things. Um, I think Vans does a lot of really good work. There are a lot of brands that I think do really, really incredible work in the culture space. Yeah. But when you can get into the, the, the fortress, the palace of some kind, and still be your brand and not yeah. have to disguise yourself as something else, Yeah. That that is a testament to everyone, but it's also a, a way to be true to who you are, not only as a brand, but the people that work on the project. Yeah. And so, um, when I say circumvent, it's it's saying it's being true to what you are by putting out something that people want to consume, not just putting something out that's going to show a logo in someone's face. Yeah, agreed. Um, so we're we're running a little bit out of time. There's lots of stuff I still want to talk about. Um, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, we, we're, we're in this COVID situation at the moment. Um, 
And the hospitality industry has been severely affected by it. Um, I wanted to get, as, as an industry expert, some, some of your thoughts of, well, where's it going? What are the trends that you're seeing that are going to come out of this uh, this time? Um, and 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 what what is the future of hospitality looking like in you know in in a post COVID world? I mean, I don't know that anyone's really got the answer to that because it's all speculative at this stage. I do know that. Um, the role of the innkeeper, and that's essentially what we are, we are innkeepers, um, is to connect. To, obviously, you provide uh, a roof and a bed and a hot meal and a, a facility to be able to shower and bathe um, uh, at a fundamental level. But as innkeepers, we are delivering uh, culture. Um, people are traveling and it's and our job to uh facilitate that for people the trend that i see is that the role of the innkeeper has gone into just as a innkeeper would have provided comfort food to the weary traveler um they are providing immunity boosting uh you know wellness uh comfort in in this more holistic approach and um that i see as a growing trend I see the, the, the return of hospitality is going to come not immediately. It'll be a process. Uh, and I don't think that it's going to come to one specific area. I think that you're going to see it manifest in a lot of different ways. Airbnb just went public and they will enjoy a return of hospitality in, you know, in, in its own right. So will large chain hotels. But I think a lot of the small um, boutique hotels are going to enjoy the return of people starting to explore. So it's all hinging on the ability to travel. Right. And the good news is that in all the surveys, the number one thing that comes up that people want to do when they get out of COVID is travel. Yeah. So that's a good indicator for me on the, um, the psyche of the future traveler the other piece is that uh, what we've seen is that content is driven by uh, by the landscapes, by the locations, uh, the colors, the textures. And in order to create that, you need to be able to be traveling and, and create and telling a story. And we've seen influencers are really suffered during this time, right? Because they have no content to produce, no story to tell. And I, I see that being nearly what bombards us once we, we open back up. The trend around social distancing and hygiene and whatnot, hotels have always tried to tout that they were hygienic places and clean, and no one's ever wanted to stay in a dirty hotel, right? Like, that's yeah. cleanliness is usually one of the top things that hotels work on. But I think that our understanding of cleanliness is going to change. Cleanliness is more of a state of mind. It's a, the environment that you've created. And I think that people have, are, are going to emerge from this state with a little bit of a PTSD on, on kind of like what a heavy year it's been. And some of the mental health solutions uh, that will be provided when people travel are going to be, um, are going to be a lot more prominent. Uh, I think of 
quiet space is. I think of the role of music when people stay in hotels and how it may evolve. Uh, the role of the spa. Um, I think that the, the, lo the destinations are going to potentially change. A lot of the travel has been driven by corporate travel. That's where the money has been. And those um, happen around, you know, corporate epicenters, places like, um, you know, New York, London, Tokyo, Paris, L.A., Hong Kong. That's changing um, because people don't need to necessarily be in those cities. So you'll still get corporate travel. It's not going to go anywhere. You need to close a deal. You need to be face to face with people. There's a human connection. Yeah. But I think that some of the more remote locations are going to thrive. Uh, I think people are going to try and nearly there'll be a one up upsmanship of like how remote you went, how secluded, how isolated. And then I see the convergence of people um, like com combining passions with travel. So like I might not have traveled for that football match. You know, I might not have gone to Portugal to see my team play, but I will now. Right. Um, I. Um, I might, you know, go to see that um, you know, art festival um, and combine it with travel. Um, I think culinary travel is going to be big. And I also think that it, from a wellness perspective, uh, culinary is going to really come to the forefront. People are not just going to um, devour food for the sake of rich experiences. They may start turning towards uh, what is the... The, the benefit of, of this experience, um, again, at a more holistic level. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we as humans have a, 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 an urge and a want to travel, and it's going to happen in stages. I think the first is going to be local. You're going to see domestic travel really like exploding pretty, pretty soon, as soon as the vaccine starts moving. Might not be international travel. Um, and we as humans have this curiosity about travel, which you just hit on. It's like we want to go places. We want to discover places. And we're like holding it in so much at the moment. Um, so I, I agree with you. And, and, and about how hard it used to be to travel. Yes. And people did everything to travel. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's still uh, not it, as hard as that, right? Yeah, like uh, absolutely. I mean, it became very, very easy. And and I, I think the other area where we're seeing trend-wise is creativity. It's it's forcing us to become more creative in the way that we market, the way that we 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 plan, uh, you know, uh, with the way we do business. The way we do everything. So, you know, it, it, in the hospitality industry, that is, is, is how, how people are staying at hotels, how people are seeing the hotels when you're, when you're trying to promote them and advertise them, how meetings are happening, how physical events are happening. It's like we're being forced in every industry now to be super creative. And I think that ultimately is a good thing because we're being challenged to change the way we think because we have to. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, all the hardships that have come out of COVID and there's been tremendous hardships, but hopefully we're not just, just going to go back to the same old, same old, you know, we're going to turn a new page. You think of all the great albums that were recorded in hotels. All right. Bring it back to a musical theme. I'm sure you could probably write a book on this. Um, yes. 
Uh, and and hotels and chateaus, I would say. <laughs> it's going to be called Hotels and Chateaus. <laughs> and um, they were all written during different periods of time. And so the, the hotel space um, provides an artist in residence environment. And you don't have to be, you know, Drake or Led Zeppelin to, to benefit from that environment. And uh, the inns always used to be at a crossroads. And I think that's a metaphor for the bringing people together. Um, but also, um, we all come to various crossroads in our own lives. And I think that this year was one of those massive cr crossroads. And so uh, I think the inn, um, whether it's at Airbnb or the big brands like Marriott and Hilton or the boutique operators, um, will we'll find their place again and I feel very optimistic about it all. I think we all have to be patient about trying to force things. It's kind of like an injury, you know, we want to come out of the injury. Yeah, and not go back into the injury yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got to man manage manage our game time <laughs> after, after being on the sidelines for a long time. And I think that goes with everything. I mean, it's like, you know, you don't want to be going out every night. You're going to, you know, you're not used to it, you know, whereas, you know, we were used to do that all the time. Um, very quickly before before we go, I, I just want to touch on, you know, your, your passion for um, wellness, uh, because you're an avid runner, you're an avid fitness freak, and you've managed to merge that passion into your work as well. And now you're at Equinox. So we only have a couple of minutes, but if you can talk a little bit about how, how you're you're you know bringing that into your current workplace? Yeah, I mean, um, the entire brand is built off three pillars of movement, uh, nutrition, and regeneration, and that's kind of an ethos of my life. Uh, um, I think in the past I haven't spent enough time on the regeneration piece, and I've gone a little too hard on on the movement. Um, but I think that. We are especially well poised for this recovery because I think that, and this is my dad's old saying, health is wealth. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, we're in the luxury space. I don't think that wellness has been democratized enough. I think if you want really good wellness, it, you know, it actually still costs you money, you know? Yeah. So not for, for all the people right now. I think there eventually will be. Um, for me, it's what gives me that extra level of energy in coming to work every day is that I'm working on a message and a belief system that I live in my personal life and in my work life. Um, and I try to stay as diversified in my approach to, to wellness as possible. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the hotel space, um, you have some very unique opportunities and sleep has become one of the main areas in this kind of resurgence of immunity building. It's an area where I have started to invest more time and appreciation personally, um, but we do sleep very we spend, we spend half our lives sleeping and <laughs> we, don't, we don't really put the effort into it that we do on the living side. You're absolutely correct, you know, or the waking side, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah amazing. So, um, Pablo, I mean, we're coming to the end. Falcon. Sorry? 
Oh, oh, was that was that David yeah, Prince? One, yeah, of my, yeah, yeah. one of my projects with my son um, during COVID. Oh wow! Yeah, we had to. That was that was David Prince who wanted to see it. So um... <laughs> <laughs> little baby, so we had to add another one. Wow! Oh, and I just fired one of the lasers by accident. <laughs> Don't shoot that... anyone. Yeah. Well. Pablo, thank you so much for 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 joining yeah. me as as a guest. It was really it was fantastic, uh, insightful. Uh, it was great hearing your journey, um, and I look forward to um, seeing you in person very soon. Um, thank you everyone for joining. Um, as I mentioned, we'll be back again on the twenty first. We have Babel Gilberto as our guest. Wow. Uh, we're very excited about that. Um, and I feel as like always. Now. I mean, you feel like, like what chopped liver? No, no, no. You no, no. We've it's a double feast. Uh, and um, as always, go to giantstep.net, check out the vault, and follow us at giantstep on Instagram. Everyone, stay safe. If you're in New York, stay inside. It's snowing out there apparently. And see you all soon. Thank you, thank you, Pablo. Good night. Bye, Mars. Bye, bye, bye. Thank you for listening to the Giant Step podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow us on Instagram at Giant Step. Music is by Cinego. Please also visit our website, giantstep.net, to learn more about our award-winning marketing agency.